This is exactly right. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a journalist, author, and podcast host. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired investigator with experience solving some of America's most notorious cold cases. Together, we host Buried Bones, a historical true crime podcast on the Exactly Right Network. Each week, we examine a different case from history and use our years of experience and 21st century forensics to bring new insights into these very old tragedies. Like the time the Sausage King of Chicago's wife went missing in 1897. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Follow Buried Bones wherever you get your podcasts. And I think the fact that it is also, it's about all of us. If we look at it as it's not just about me or Zach or our family, but it is a community issue, it is a world, it is a global issue really in terms of we're all in this together and it does affect us all. And I feel like these things can happen to any of us at any time. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Madness and Motherhood with Tanya Frank. Tanya received her MFA in creative nonfiction at the University of California, Riverside. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and many, many more places. She is the author of her new memoir, which we will be talking about today, Zigzag Boy, A Memoir of Madness and Motherhood. Tanya lives with her wife in London and is joining us today from London. Tanya, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. So I have to say, as a person, as a psychologist, as a parent, Reading your book and having finished your memoir, my heart and soul pains for, for you, for Zachary, for your wife, for your other son. I, I just have to say, I feel very raw still, um, having freshly completed it. And I, my, my first question of my long list is, how are you? How is he? Yes, that's that's quite a question indeed. Um, I'm okay. I'm good today at this very moment. Um, I do have my ups and downs like everybody else in the world. And I think sometimes they're a little bit more down um, because my son is actually still, um, he's had to return into the hospital. He's in a locked ward, a rehab, which is not where the book ends. The book mm -hmm. ended after lockdown. And of course, we, you know, we're three years on from that. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not the narrative that I would have hoped for. Um, but I do still have hope. And I do still have some really good days because I do get to see him twice a week. And I'm also involved in quite a lot of advocacy work, which really is strengthening for my soul and my spirit. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. those are the good days. Yeah. Those are the good moments. But thank you for asking. Yeah. Well, it's nice to see your face is um, your smile is glowing. So um, there is something that you have found in all of, in your journey and your healing, and as we'll talk about the road um, to today, that 
how does one how does one live in the present i imagine when there is pain and worry and suffering in your family Yes, yeah. I think it's definitely a work in progress to live in the present. I think I'm getting better at it with age and having lived through so much trauma um, and realised that actually it's it's just so much more beneficial to try to just find those things that just kind of make your heart sing and those things to be grateful for and I think I started off finding that with my work as a docent in Año Nuevo yes. the elephant seal colony um, yes. which in the beginning was somewhat of a challenge because it was off the grid and I couldn't keep tabs on my son I couldn't reach him there was no cell service there was no um, wi-fi but I think it turned out to be really liberating and the just being in nature as magnificent mm -hmm. as that was, was really healing for me. And so I find that now I go out into the forest. I'm in London, so there are no elephant mm -hmm. seals here. Mm -hmm. um, but I go to Epping Forest and I find joy all through the different seasons of which, you know, there are a lot more changing seasons here than mm -hmm. In California, they're more more noticeable, and also just with my dog, and just um, yeah, moments that I have with my family that I feel really grateful for, and and with my community of other mothers that I've found that I mm -hmm. can really just find there is joy alongside the suffering and maybe the joy is actually more profound and more poignant <laughs> mm -hmm. because of the suffering you know the, yeah. the almost yeah. that seesaw effect really that mm -hmm. take you know the perspectives of 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 what mm -hmm. it means to be content when you have known the depths of of that kind of pain right it puts sharp focus into moments of gratitude um, in, co in contrast of those depths. Um, the elephant seals <laughs> obviously are a huge part of your life. Um, it seems like a very uh, a deep and uh, important part of your life. My, my wife and I about a month ago went to see them um, and the pups. And uh, so reading about them through your expertise as a docent um, was, was, was interesting to me. What is it, what was it and is it about the elephant seals that, it, I mean, it, they're throughout your memoir. It, mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like returning home to them and giving you some sense of, of peace and control or something. Yes, yeah, that's, um, that's very true. I think the control came with me leading the guests out to see the elephant seals and eventually feeling equipped to be able to answer their questions because there were some very sort of scientific questions that really only had one answer to them and the path was very defined unless the seals decided that day to come in and to, you know, make their way encroach, um, well, not really encroach because it's their land, but actually to be on the paths and then the rangers would redesignate, you know, would actually rope the the paths differently but there was a lot that was very routine in terms of the time I had to be there the time I had to stay until my shift and my responsibilities so that was definitely a lot that I could feel was controlled for me or that I could control myself whereas with what was happening with Zach and you know, his extreme states and, and this thing that we call psychosis, there was so much that, you know, I, I was out of my hands that, you know, I, I never quite knew what would happen when there was um, little, at least in the early days that I could even predict. Um, so definitely being at the colony, there was something safe, but there was also something that was such a great metaphor for what I was going through and that was sort of the mystery of these animals and so much that we didn't understand about them and how 
they worked and there was a lot of research that was going on, but the way that they could deep dive their sort of extreme habits that, you know, scientists were still unable to explain. And I could see that in the way that we don't really understand the brain as much as we would like to, um, as much as I would hope that we might one day. Um, so there was definitely some similarities. And also when I watched the mothers leaving their pups, it made me think about how I needed maybe to detach a little bit more. So there was mm-hmm. just everything that I witnessed was, I really saw it as a just such a great metaphor for what we were going through outside mm-hmm. of the, outside of the colony. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we will get to the whole parental challenge of detaching um, soon, uh, whether we have a child that has um, dealing with a health issue. Um, I mean, even if a child is not dealing with a health issue, it's very hard for many parents to detach, let alone when we are concerned about a child's mental health, physical health, or both. This all started when Zach was 19, which is what, approximately 15, 16 years ago? Yes. 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 Yeah. What... When did the idea of writing this, documenting this happen? How did the process of the memoir come? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, I never thought that I could write about this. One, because, well, I never thought I could publish this. One, because it's so painful. Two, because it's so personal. And three, because it's actually very hard to publish memoir if you're not a celebrity or you don't have something absolutely phenomenal that is very out of the ordinary that has happened to you. So I still have to kind of pinch myself sometimes to even contemplate the fact that I did get this book published and, you know, not being a celebrity and with psychosis actually being something that is far more common than we realise and understand. Um, But I did do the writing part without thinking about the publishing and that was a way of just finding my way through the grief and the trauma and the chaos because I was actually a writer and I had gone and studied writing and I'd Mm -hmm. found writing as my means of expression for many years before this thing happened. Um, So it was something that I did to keep track, to keep notes, to reflect, to just get it out when I couldn't sleep and i couldn't almost be in my body because it was just so hard and so, you know, angst provoking. Um, Mm -hmm. But I didn't know that it would ever be a book. And then two things happened, actually. One was a a colleague, um, a a friend, another student. uh, You know, I was writing my thesis for my MFA when all of this really started. And I felt so sad that I was doing my study for a second go around. I was doing a second degree and my son was struggling to be able to stay in his first degree. So it felt really just like, just so out of order, just such, such a kind of unjust thing really. Um, And I was struggling with that. And he said to me, why aren't you writing about this? You know, why aren't you doing, why aren't you writing about this for your thesis or for this to put out? Because it seems really important. And it kind of stayed with me, that suggestion. And the first thing that I wrote, I couldn't put our names to. I actually changed our names. I even changed my name. And I think there was a lot of shame and stigma in me and fear about Mm -hmm. disclosing that. Um, And then the second, that was for, I think it was a literary magazine. And then the second thing I published was with the Washington Post. I changed our names, but I kept my name, which was sort Mm. of one step closer to the truth. And Mm -hmm. then the third thing that I wrote that was the biggest platform really at that time was for the New York Times, 
where I used my name, I told our truth. My son was not named in that piece and it was really interesting. I didn't realise until afterwards reading it myself that he was he, him, my son, my boy, but I hadn't actually named him. So perhaps I was still holding back a little Mm -hmm. bit. Mm -hmm. So it was a very huge step to be out there really to sort of, you know, just be naked in the world and expose us all. And as the time got closer, it was, it was, um, there has been, you know, a bit of anxiety around the ethics and what it will mean. And just there's so much at stake really in having your work out there, or you feel that there is as an author, Mm -hmm. whether, you know, whether that's Mm -hmm. partly my ego at play as well to think that, you know, so many people will know our story and what does that really mean? Um, The flip side of that is as an advocate, I feel it's really important to Mm -hmm. touch people's hearts and reach them and, when our voices as parents and as, um, you know, people that struggle with altered states, um, extreme um, psychiatric psychiatric distress, their voices are so often silent. So it's quite empowering to have our story out there as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> so yeah. It's, it's complicated. And did everyone, everyone in the family was like, yeah, let's do this, use our names, you know, we're, we're comfortable with this? Yes, I think yeah. that um, they obviously, you know, I, I, I don't know what it's like living with a writer because I'm a writer myself. I'm not sure how I would be if my son was a published author that, you know, that I that they or my wife and if I was portrayed in right. their right. writing in a way right. that, you know, I didn't, love every single part of it or maybe I would have had a different perspective or a different sense of what happened so I think they were used to being written about and also just living with me in the way I view the world through a lens as you know an author um, as an artist but I think that it was difficult for all of us and I don't think we anticipated all of that until you know, it was time for the launch and time for the media articles and time for, you know, all of this. And then I think it, it feels a little bit more kind of like, um, yeah, just to being out there than yeah. than we anticipated. But mm-hmm. I think there are some really good, important things about that as well. And also, um, I've had to look, you know, quite carefully and quite closely about how I have done that and, um, you know, just Mm -hmm. there were some certain changes along the way and obviously, you know, legal gets involved as well to look at the way people are represented. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's been interesting. Well, the product, so as a reader, um, the rawness and the vulnerability, the pain, um, it's it's what makes this memoir this book so impactful because it is as a reader it is 150% real and um you don't one does not know what is going to happen from page to page um just as you in your life didn't know don't know what is going to happen day to day when we're dealing with a s- severe mental illness, which we're calling psychosis, right? And you've, you've now learned how imperfect, that is probably a euphemism that legal would like using, um, <laughs> the system, the medical system, the psychiatric system, the psychological system, the, meta, the pharmaceutical system, the insurance system, like how imperfect, how well, I think you might say broken at yeah. times the system is. Yes, yes, extremely so. Um, and absolutely, that was my entry point into finding that out because up until then we were, you know, relatively robust and healthy and, and of course, being in England with a NHS system, mm-hmm. um, which is really failing quite badly now, but at the time 
for me growing up and also before we left America when Zach was 12 and Dale was 13, um, you know, it was a very simple scenario. It wasn't only simple in terms of our where we were at and our sort of general state of, of, of being, but it was simple in that you went to the doctor and the doctor gave you a prescription and you went to the chemist and you got your medicine and you may have paid a little bit if you were working, but if you weren't, you paid very little or almost nothing. And it, it, there was no complexity around co-pays or deductibles or private insurance or mm-hmm. not having insurance and absolutely that whole thing around psychosis and um you know the fears that go along and the fight that the struggle it felt like I was either on my son's side in terms of understanding that the drugs were really not helpful and actually quite harmful and disabling him further so then it was as if we had to fight the 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 status quo the sort of dominant biomedical model to try and say can we try more talk therapy or can we lower the dose or can we try a different medicine or is this the right approach at all but also there were times that I had to really be kind of not fighting with my son but advocating so strongly and trying to keep him safe that it was so all-consuming and then along with that to have to struggle with insurance on top and different programs or treatments was it was such a full-time job that I did actually have to I realized that I couldn't teach and I had done I had studied you know, I'd got loans and, and taken this time to study in the hope that I would be able to go back to teaching because I was a lecturer, a professor here in England. But I knew that I could not go back to work because my work then became it was a full time job to really be mm-hmm. with my son and to take care of him. And so we were so privileged in terms of what we had with this battle and I just think about those who are not those that don't have anywhere to live or that don't have we had private insurance some of the time Mm -hmm. this was going on Um, you know people of colour have much higher incidence of diagnosis and they often come into mental health through the criminal justice system and there is so much that I am still grateful for just in terms of the fact that we had Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a home and we had food and we had and I was educated enough to make some decisions and to be listened to in a way that maybe some demographies are not right and even in the this um let's call it um optimal situation it is unthinkable to think of the um just to to read about through a person or a character in a story that you're coming to know and rooting for the the internal pain and suffering for when your thoughts are betraying you and as a parent who is educated, who is intelligent, who has means, who has a partner, a family support, and still, and still the, the sleepless nights, the wondering what's coming next, uh, is this medicine going to work? What treatment will gonna, is going to work? What do we even call this? And um, it's, it is a story, it is a story of many Right, it's an individual story of your family, and the reason this is so important that this is out. It is the story of many people and families with um, mental, severe mental health issues, and which led you to NAMI, the National Alliance of Mentally Ill, with a whole world of of support and for people who share not only the experience but have been farther along the journey to be guides, as you are now, I'm sure, to many others. Yes, yes. Um, 
I think it's quite different when you are at the, you know, year 10, year 11, year 12 of the journey. I think there might be less fear and I also think there might be a little more acceptance when you've trod that much. There's still that level of pain and there are still moments where I wish that, you know, all those years ago when this happened that I had been aware of some of the things that I'm aware of now um, and really the alternatives that some people turn to um, which are not as biomedical model Mm -hmm. based Mm -hmm. um, which is still very much the dominant system and I think the system that is driven by capitalism as well because of the pharmaceutical industry Um, so to learn about how things are done in different parts of Europe which are um, you know more compassionate based and more focused around listening and being with someone in their distress and um, you know of course I'm not saying that this is the simple answer for every single person that goes through you know what is known as a a psychotic break or what used to be known as a a, a nervous breakdown because sometimes it needs so much more but I think that the so much more can also be quite traumatizing and taking somebody away from a place where they feel safe into a locked environment without nature, without sunlight, um, and, you know, where their voices are, the the voices are seen as a a symptom rather than perhaps a response or something to be listened to, to make meaning from. Um, I think that these ways are somewhat archaic and maybe in years to come we will look back at what we're doing in the same way that we look back at the lobotomy and the ice baths and the Mm -hmm. insulin treatments and you know those very sort of what we see now as barbaric and cruel and I think that sometimes the amount of sedating medication that is given Um, is about control and about averting this idea of risk, which is much more overplayed than it really Mm -hmm. needs to be. And I think that we can dig down a little bit to look at how, you know, there's nothing, there's no brain scan, there's no blood test to show this thing that we call psychosis or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or schizoaffective Mm -hmm. disorder there has never been and I'm sure that scientists it would be really helpful if there were because it would really you know I think help with marketing but I think we've been led to believe that this idea of you know um, a broken brain that is the fault of the individual or that if it's not the fault of the individual it's the sad tragic circumstances for that individual is something that keeps us quite stuck and stops us from looking at the community as something that can really help the person to recover from what is often a life event, a traumatic life event or a set of circumstances. And when I realised this some years through my journey, I just, there was part of me that felt very liberated to have that new kind of perspective, but a part of me that was quite sad because a lot of damage had been done by that time through the repeated hospitalizations and the drugs. This is why I imagine you write at the beginning of the book, which I would like to read because it's, it's, it's what you, your intention for us all to learn is you write, I hope that the simple idea of being with someone and not doing to them, of asking what has happened and not what is wrong will resonate and proliferate. I firmly believe in the privilege of supporting each other in this way and will continue to advocate for such a basic philosophy, which will conserve money as well as lives and help to promote a more compassionate world. 
So you talk about the Western medical broken brain um, conceptualization, as you have just discussed. And then later on your journey, you stumble upon alternative ways of thinking. And you meet a, a very important person, a clinician, a therapist who has also been on this own personal path herself and opens up this whole other world of possibility of how to be with someone who's experiencing this phenomenon um, in a way which is healing. It doesn't necessarily take away psychosis, but it brings communication, it brings dignity, it brings respect, it brings community. Tell, tell us about yes. that. Yes, that was um, that was really my aha moment, actually. Um, we had been through, well, Zach himself had been through many different treatment programs and seen many different psychiatrists and been in and out of hospital, both within the private insurance system and um, through the county, um, through Medi-Cal, um, which was much harder, actually. It felt quite criminalising um, the way he was often led off in handcuffs or put into a, uh, a wheelchair, um, and everything was quite restricted the visiting the communication um it was it was it was very traumatizing for all of us um and we had gone through quite some time of this and and then i had joined nami which gave me the support of other mothers um other parents uh, which was very empowering to have that kind of grassroots communication um but it was also the literature was very medicalized. So it was still those same kinds of ideas um, that were being taught to us and talked about. So it wasn't until I actually went to Northern California and uh, brought Zach with us to Northern California and met a therapist who at the same age that Zach had been, had been given the same diagnosis and had felt very much like Zach that her life, the drugs had made her so numb that her quality of life was such that she didn't feel that she wanted to live. It just wasn't a, um, a life worth living. So that was something that they both were really able to empathize about together and identify with each other around their narratives their life stories um and she introduced me to ideas well first of all it was just quite incredible to me because I hadn't really met a survivor in inverted commas I hadn't met anybody who you know had come out of this away from this label and away from all of these drugs and was holding down a profession that was you know, very stressful and very reputable and was, you know, just so confident and looked so healthy. So first of all, it was a little bit shocking to me that this was possible because the ideology that I had believed was that if you have this, you know, so-called disease um, or illness or condition, that it would be for life. It might be able to be managed, but you couldn't really overcome it. And I think that um, Ellen Sachs, who's quite a pioneer in NAMI, she had been told that she would never get married and she couldn't expect to have a job. So there was a part of me that really believed these um, ideas and felt very guilty and felt that it was my fault and maybe it was because, you know, I had left Zach's father, that I was gay, that Zach had two mothers, that... You know, I think that when something happens in your life that causes that kind of chaos, I think as a mother, especially, you look to everything from, you know, the birth to the breastfeeding to the milestones that might not have been reached. And so it had been a very fraught time with a lot of, you know, just really sort of self-reflection that was difficult. So when I met this therapist, it felt very liberating and she introduced me to 
all kinds of networks and literature that really did look differently. So from the Satiria movement, which began in San Jose, um, a Satiria house, which was based on um, uh, R.D. Lang and his model of actually being with people in all of their distress and, you know, medication as an if it's wanted but not forced, no coercion. Um, so people lived within and they still live within the Satiria house and models like Satiria, they live together as a family um, and people aren't called patients or residents. You know, there's not that kind of hierarchy. There's It's more of a peer um, approach so that mm-hmm. was very interesting and also she introduced us to something called the hearing voices network which again there are no clinicians that are part of that network but people can talk to each other and even if they have voices that are quite difficult or distressing there is nobody to call the hospital and have them you know um uh taken in um to you know there's there's the it's not medicalized they are able to express to each other and find meaning in the voices and also live with these voices because i didn't realize there are far more people in the world that actually have that are voice hearers and some find it very like almost shamanic or spiritual and they're grateful mm-hmm. and they couldn't live without these voices Mm -hmm. so um that and then also something called open dialogue which was Mm -hmm. um founded in finland in lapland which is a system where um you know the therapy is this there's a a phrase which is nothing about me without me so rather than people talking about the person that has psychosis in the third person you know often even without them there or before they come into the room or when they leave the room open dialogue has the person at the center of the constellation or the network and even if they pop in and out or even if they can't manage a full 50 minutes or even if they are hearing voices all of that it's starting where that person is and Mm -hmm. um, rather than you know seeing them as seeing everything about them as a label and an illness and something that needs to be treated and controlled so Right. I found all of that incredibly rich. And, and in the book, I work my way through those, you know, revelations almost. Um, right. And that's sort of where I'm at now. Um, I have been labelled anti-psychiatry with, after my last Guardian article that I wrote, mm-hmm. which I don't think that it's that clear cut. I think I'm anti-coercive, um, archaic, mm, right. broken system, essentially. Right. Well, what you what you made me think about as a mental health practitioner is, and and Zach and his his experiences is how we're trained in a model which is often in in crises to keep people safe to reduce liability of a very bad thing happening to the person or the others known or unknown around the people especially in situations where someone is not thinking rationally or clearly and and in thinking about that i've know of many situations i've been a part of where that seems to be on the forefront and secondary is and that worry that concern and secondary is how that intervention is going to impact the person a uh, feeling of respect feeling of um dignity you know and and so it's it's a pretty restrictive system right it's a 5150, which you have experienced many, which Zach has experienced many of, we are against your will, we are hospitalizing you because you're a danger to yourself and others or perceived to be a danger to yourself and others. And it seems like the system is 
pretty black and white. And in my in my experience, it is the seasoned clinicians who have been doing it for a while who are able to tolerate higher levels of risk in favor of the wholeness of the person. But it's a lot in these situations to navigate that, that system for everyone involved. Um, and much easier to read about it than to be in it. But I just want you to know the impact it's had on me as a mental health practitioner. And there still is all too much suicidal thinking and suicidal ideation and completed suicides these days of people of all ages. So all of us who are on the front lines are on high alert to keep people alive. However, many, many things as we're talking about get lost in that ultimate objective. Yes, yes, absolutely. I agree. And it's about what kind of alive as well. What kind of, you know, what quality of life are we um, ending up with, with, um, you know, I think that also statistically, it's not shown, it's not proven that people who are taken and locked away when they're having suicidal ideation and maybe kept safe in inverted commas for that duration of time, but that it doesn't necessarily make a difference. And often when they are discharged, that suicidal ideation can be even stronger because of the trauma that has ensued and the autonomy that has been taken away from them. And um, I read a book recently by Daniel Bergner, whose brother was diagnosed with uh, bipolar, and he did a character study in the book. He um, interviewed somebody who actually was one of the founders of the Hearing Voices Network, um, and she worked in a crisis house. And it was very interesting because she talked about how when people called her over the pandemic um, period, lockdown, where there was so much isolation, there was a lot less face-to-face kind of support, but she had calls that were often very, very distressing and it was really hard for her to listen and their policy was that they didn't call if somebody had suicidal ideation. It was really about listening, listening and being there for that person rather than a lot of suicide lines. Obviously, they do go straight through to, you know... um, uh, you know, you could have an ambulance on the way if that person taking the call believes that that's the safest mm-hmm. thing. And I think also in America and more so in England now, that fear because, you know, everybody is quite scared of being sued and the legal framework, you know, there are so many more lawyers mm-hmm. per right. head of the population. But if you do look outside of systems like ours at less industrialized countries, their voices are much less violent because of what is seen and what is experienced. Their um, function, their function and their recovery rates are much better because of the responsibility in the family, the responsibility that individuals carry. And the stigma is, is quite different. And I'm not saying, you know, I don't want to paint this idyllic picture about, you know, if you live in a village in India, your chance, you know, obviously there are huge hurdles and there's poverty and there, you know, that, that it's not, perfect either but it's just interesting to look and you know America and England has this idea that western medicine makes us so advanced and so civilized and our health level should be so much superior but actually it's the opposite and billions of pounds have been spent on mental health in the UK but we're not advancing, we're actually declining. You know, there are more people that are needing, showing up, wanting treatment, um, ending their lives. Um, Gosh, I'm kind of painting a really bleak picture here, but it's just an interesting view when you stop and look a little bit at the picture as a whole. And I think the fact that it is also, it's about all of us. You know, this your program is about each one of us taking responsibility and leaving a better footprint, a more compassionate one. And I think 
if we look at it as it's mm. not just about me or Zach or our family, but it is a community issue. It is a world, it is a global issue really in terms of we're all in this together and it does affect us all. And I feel like we're all on a spectrum of mm-hmm. of distress and, and these things can happen to any of us at any time. It's not the sense of othering that, you know, Zach is something else, he's someone else, he's different because of this label and because he hears voices. I think the closer we can get to understanding that we can all fall into an altered state as easily as, you know, through the madness of grief or bereavement or illness or any other kind of extreme life event, I I think it makes it a little bit more understandable. Mm -hmm. Detaching. There was a time that you were on a different continent as him. Um, you know, you had to make very tough decisions about um, your wife, your son, uh, work, geography. So I'm not just talking about geographical detachment because there is space, but there's also that psychological and emotional detachment that one has to get to eventually yeah. when living in this situation. What what can you tell our listeners for those who... <laughs> Are, are struggling in the same sort of situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, I think for me it was especially hard to detach and um, I, I, I did have quite a lot of therapy over the years um, and I also worked quite hard and there were times where I had to detach where Zach was physically in another place. So, you know, physically I absolutely had to detach. Um, mentally, I do yoga. Um, I've had times where I've pushed my body very hard until it's, it's so exhausted that I have to rest and I do things that kind of occupy my deeper brain a little bit. Like I go cold swimming, even all mm. through the winter here in England, where it's really about just coping with each stroke and each breath and getting around the lake without getting hypothermia. Um, mm-hmm. And that gives me community because there are other people that I do that with and it also gives me space for self-care as well so I think that it's really important I've realized that when I spent nights awake and worrying and being just terribly disturbed about the future or what I could do to fix Zach and cure him and mend him and find the right doctor or find the right pill or find the right anything, I was actually really putting him in a position where he felt very broken and also putting myself in a position where I didn't have the strength and the resilience to be who I needed to be for the rest of my family and for Zach and for myself um, so, you know, I, I, I think it takes work and practice mm-hmm. and some nights I still find it hard to go to sleep and, you know, I, I kind of wonder how it happened and what happened and what might happen and is there anything I can do? But I think that just through yoga and I belong to this group called Safely Held Spaces, which is here in the UK, but I think that it may be growing more um, to become something more international. We do have one member from Canada, actually. Um, And it is a model where it's not, it it does allow for alternative viewpoints and um, supporting our loved ones if they want to try and taper down safely on their medication, because that's another thing that a lot of psychiatrists aren't taught how to or or don't even always necessarily understand or believe what can happen when somebody comes off of the medication quickly Mm -hmm. or cold turkey um, and they see it as a kind of rebound of the psychosis when in fact it is often a withdrawal syndrome which looks very much like 
you know, it can take a long time. It can be very protracted and very difficult. So mm-hmm. um, it's really looking at ways to do that and to support people that might want to reduce um, and, and regain um, more health. Um mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, and I think also the book has been a big milestone for me in terms of being able to just let go a little bit. It's out there now. It has its own Mm -hmm. journey. We all have our own journey um, in this life. So, yeah, I think that there's an analogy there. Yeah, it's nice to see your smile as (laughs) you say that. What words, approaching final words, um, do you have for our listeners who are dealing with a similar situation, a situation where they have a child or a loved one um, who's dealing with a serious mental health issue? Given your now hard-fought wisdom, mm-hmm. what can you share? Well, I think first of all, I think just really, really try to um, not be extremely fearful and I know that's again a harder thing it's easier said than done but if you do have any support at all that you know anybody within the family outside of it that you can turn to um to be able to to have some support um I think also the self-care is really, really important. But I think that knowing, you know, I think we're driven by fear a lot, especially the way the media portrays, you know, especially in America with so much gun violence. And I think that the media has often portrayed, you know, the the person with schizophrenia as being the person that, you know, is... Um, is is the perpetrator of all of that crime so i think it does lead us to 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 think the the very worst and to be fearful but actually most um people with those kinds of diagnoses are more likely to be victims rather than perpetrators of of those kinds of crimes so i think as much as you can try to just be with your person as long as it does you know feel safe and to listen and to not be too too alarmed because what I found is that if I can listen then Zach or other people that I've spoken to in that kind of level of distress just need to be heard and just need to say what they need to say and that that is so much more valuable than perhaps you know um anything else that you might try to do um, and might feel that you need to do. Um, And also definitely, you know, support groups, definitely reach out to, Mm -hmm. to um, NAMI if, if, if that's something that's, that's in your area that's available or for me, um, you know, I have safely held spaces. I have, Soteria London I have um other groups that that I can ask advice um mm-hmm. yeah it does take a village it does of, it of really support does yeah. yes okay it's time for the parent footprint moment question <laughs> tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual as a parent or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your children, and or those you love? Sure, sure. That's that's an excellent question. I think for me, actually, it was when I looked back at my forebears, at my ancestry, and realized um, their journey and how how difficult it had been for them um, because I think for the longest time I had really only considered my role um, and my parenting and our journey. But when I actually looked back, my mother was an orphan, so she had never learned how to parent. She'd never been parented herself. And my grandmother on my father's side lost 
most of her family in the Second World War um, in Eastern Europe in the concentration camps. And she had one remaining brother who she was very, very close to. And when she left to come here to England, um, he couldn't come with her. My grandfather was British and they were one of the last families out. But she did say to her brother, I'll get you over. We'll meet again. I, you know, it won't be long. I will do everything I can. And that didn't happen. He was actually taken to Auschwitz. And at the end of the war, she was so mad with grief. She was so absolutely just broken that she was admitted to a psychiatric hospital. She was certified as insane. But the family never spoke about her again and the children were told that she had died, which was a very, very common thing in those times. So I think when I learned about that, it made me think, number one, this is transgenerational trauma. There is so much that has happened that has been carried in our lineage. There's so much unspoken. There's so many secrets. There's so much pain. It's not just my fault. And um, I think that that felt really like I could just relax a little bit and exhale and know that, yes, you know, there were definitely things that I could have done differently and I could have done better. But I think so often we don't look at what has come before us and Mm -hmm. how to break that pattern and how to kind of tread it differently. The bigger picture, huh? The the the, the longer lens and the yes. larger perspective. Um, yes. yes. Context helps give us meaning. Definitely, yeah. definitely, yeah. and and also, I think because my grandmother, her name was not mentioned, and I grew up not even knowing that I had a grandmother in a mental hospital that I could have gone, to, I could have actually visited her and gone to see her and so I think that made me feel all the more that it was important to tell our story and to make us visible in a way that she wasn't and also my mother holding on so tightly to us because of all of her abandonment issues I think made me understand how I tried to hold on really tightly to fix Zach because that's Mm -hmm. what I had experienced growing up with my mother that I didn't Mm -hmm. understand at the time yes well Tanya thank you for sharing your story with the world to you. you and your you and your family Zach Dale everyone um it's uh, it's such an act of courage and vulnerability, and something that we all need to hear. And I'm just telling you personally, as again in all of my roles, including mental health person, it really has impacted me. And it is a story that I'm going to recommend, and content that I'm going to share with my colleagues when we have families we are supporting who are dealing with similar situations. Thank you. That's that's yeah. really important. That's really. Yeah wonderful because that's why I wrote the book and that's what I hope for the book so thank you so much thank you Dan it's been lovely being on the program so tell everyone where they can find your memoir so you can find my memoir at any bookshop wherever you buy your books it's zigzag boy a memoir of madness and motherhood and it was published by ww norton Wonderful. Powerful. Wishing you and your family all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, everyone. Please do share this with everyone you know who will benefit so many people privately and publicly dealing with issues, mental health issues, pre and post COVID, often exacerbated by COVID. This is so, so important for us to talk about these things, be open to alternative ways of treatment, of healing, of support, and knowing that we are all growing, all of our field is still growing and we have a long way to go. Thank you for your five-star reviews. Thank you for being a part of our community. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question. I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? 
This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummer Man, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.